0: Lord, thank you that you are a God that has done great things. Lord, and that you are a God that is not finished doing great things. Lord, I I pray that you would help us this morning uh, to lean into your truth in a new and a fresh way. Jesus, you, you have all the love, peace, joy that we could ever need. Lord, and this morning... As we walk in and as we settle into to hear your word. God, it's our prayer that that we would find whatever we need in you. Lord, that you would fill us up, Lord, with your truth. God, with a hunger for your word. God, we love you and we trust you. God, we trust you with... um, the hurt that is represented in our city this week. Lord, of families that are grieving loss this week. God, I pray that you would be the God of all comfort. Lord, your word says that you are near to the brokenhearted. God, you, you say that there's promise for those who are poor in spirit. Lord, that recognize their need for you. Jesus, I pray for, for families around Colorado Springs this week. Lord, from the different incidents that have happened in our city, Lord, we, we ask that you would, you would provide peace and comfort. God, we love you. God, sometimes I feel like I don't say that enough, but we we love you. God, not just in word, but in action. Lord, if there's anything that we need to set aside right now, I just want to wait on you for a second. Holy Spirit, would you just interrupt our lives today? It's in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Well, good morning. Thanks for coming, even though there was snow. Um, my commute was pretty good, a little slick, but traffic was great, um, <laughs> so so it was all good. Uh, do I have anybody that really likes candles, like scented candles? Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite favorite scent? Sage. What was that? Depends on. What about this season? pumpkin spice? In February? That's odd, but we'll love you anyway. It's fine. Honeysuckle. (laughs) Well, I love candles. Um, I have probably too many of them in my house. I remember once I had a family over to my house, and one of their kids said, Lindsay, how many candles do you own? (laughs) And I said, not enough, okay? <laughs> um, because I, I grew up in a house where my dad was like allergic to candles, and so we never got to do that. So I, and I don't think that I had enough rebellion, so that's kind of like one of the ways that I live out my teenage r- rebellion of having candles in my house. But um, this candle is actually one of my favorite candles. It might be my favorite candle. I actually received it from one of my best friends. Um, and it... It's a lilac candle. And you don't find those very often. Um, And the reason I love this candle is because it reminds me of things that happen in my life. And really good things. You know, did you know that they say that your sense of smell is the best thing to bring back a memory? Um, Brides, they'll buy a specific perfume on their wedding day. Just to use for that to remember that day and and this candle it has a special meaning to me because of that smell. Um, my mom, when I was growing up, she worked at a hospital, and she was like like the original feminist, like so feminist she would never even say that because she's just tough and bad butted and stuff, and so uh, she ran three, at one time it was three floors of the hospital uh, in our city. And anyway, my mom loved for my dad to pick her up and to drop her off from work. And so I would sometimes come along with him because I was young and I couldn't be trusted at home. And we lived out of town. And so we would drive into town and there were these huge lilac bushes next to the road. And I'm talking massive, like, because you know lilac bushes, if you don't trim them, they're just going to take over, right? And so these had taken over, and they would lean over the side of the road, kind of, and when it was in season, when those lilacs would bloom, my dad and I, we would get out of the car, and we would pick some, and then we'd surprise mom when we picked her up from work, and then we'd take those lilacs home, and we'd set them on the kitchen table, and that smell would just fill the entire house. And this candle reminds me of those kinds of moments. It reminds me of those moments of my dad loving my mom and loving her well. Later on in in years, my dad would plant, I think, like six lilac bushes for my mom on on their lot. She just loved them. And, And I'll tell you something. I love this candle, but I bet if I lit it in my house, you wouldn't walk in and take like a big deep inhale and think, wow, you must have a really good box of matches, right? You wouldn't think, wow, whatever you use to light this candle, that must have been amazing. Uh, Because the purpose is the candle. But yet, the match, if we don't have it, the candle doesn't have its purpose. They go hand in hand. And if we don't have this match, and if we don't use it, if we don't blow it out, it will run its course, won't it? It was useful, it has a purpose, it has a meaning. And if we don't use it for that, well, we might never remember all of the great memories that lilacs hold in my life. And so I want you to keep this this picture in your mind today as we start our conversation about jesus because i think that we'll find that a candle and a match seems to be very perfect to what we're talking about now when we were in im last week pastor valerie did a marvelous job at talking about how jesus called his first disciples And she asked a really good question at the end of her her sermon, and one that kind of wrecked me, and that was, what is your next yes? What is the next thing that God's asking you to do? Now, in this story, we have already been from uh, the Jordan River with uh, John the Baptist, with locust breath. Uh, and with long beards. We have seen Jesus be tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. And then, last week, we talked about the very first disciples. So where we pick up this week is immediately following that in Luke 4, starting in verse 14. It says, News about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, when we read this, and we read this text, and it says that everyone praised him, especially after we just finished singing about how great our God is, we could get a little confused on what this text actually means. Because praise right here wouldn't be praise how you and I think of. It wouldn't be raising your hands in adoration, recognizing that Jesus is king. No, this is the kind of praise that you get at work when you finish a big project. Now, this would be the kind of praise that might be in a graduation card. Like, good job, you did it. Because at this time, people were looking at Jesus as a great teacher. They were looking at Jesus as a a prophet, even, as a rabbi. As a rabbi with, like, a fresh perspective on old-school Judaism, you know? (laughs) And they praised him for it. They said, wow, you are so powerful at doing what you're doing. And yet, Jesus was not here just to do that, right? He was not here just to bring a fresh perspective on the Old Testament, on the old law. Many people thought that he was just the next prophet. When we look at at scripture and the timeline of that, Malachi was the final prophet in the Old Testament, and 400 years passes, four centuries pass, and nobody has spoken like Malachi did, and they think, man, this guy's here just to pick up where Malachi left off. Look at, what he said. look at what the people were saying about him in Luke 7, verse 16. A great prophet has appeared to us, they said. God has come to help his people. Which is peculiar. Because we just had John the Baptist say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of who? The world. And people were saying, look at this prophet. Who has come to help us? And Jesus will say, Not so fast. See, through the entirety of his ministry, Jesus is dropping hints and saying that there is something bigger that is coming. And one of the most crucial moments that he does this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's our topic for today, is the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll I'll do a shameless plug here. Um, There is no way for me to cover all of the depths of the Sermon on the Mount in one sermon. And also, I'll tell you, preaching a sermon about a sermon has felt a little weird this week. Uh, But but I will say that we have a three-month series over the Sermon on the Mount Tuesday nights. I'm leading it. I'd love to have you. Um, But today, what we're going to do is that we're going to look at an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, and really understand it in the historical context that it was spoken. See, this sermon, it illustrates a worldview that is so different. So different. Up until this point, it was all about power. It was all about authority. It was all about how much land do I have that is mine. And what do we know about the Israelites right now? is that they don't have their own land. They are under Roman oppression. And Jesus comes and he speaks in a very different way than they were anticipating. Let's look at this, Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to preach to them, to teach to them. And I love this, because before Jesus even utters a syllable, he's already teaching his followers. He gets up on a mountainside. Another person that got up on a mountainside with a crowd would be Moses, right? Only this time, Jesus goes up onto a mountainside, not to seclude himself from the people, but so that he can see everybody. And then he sits down. Now when you're having a conversation with somebody and they sit down, what does that communicate to you? It communicates, we're going to be here for a minute. It communicates, I'm I'm in here for the long haul. Let's talk. And, And Jesus sits down, and this isn't just that that it communicates, but rabbis, when they were to teach, they would sit down. It would be the equivalent of like clearing your throat. Listen up, for I'm about to teach something. And not only that, is that he sits down after seeing this crowd of people. And it's almost as if the text reads that after seeing this crowd of people, he is motivated in love to share this. I love this quote from Clarence Jordan. He says, The sight of common, ordinary folks such as one might see on a busy street or at a football game or in a bus station, inspired the greatest teaching ever given to humanity. How beautiful. I don't know if those kinds of sights of a busy street or a bus station or a football game, if they would motivate me to start preaching the greatest sermon ever in existence, but they motivated God. And so he sits down, and he says, he begins like this, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Which would be absolutely crazy pants, okay? (laughs) Absolutely nuts. Because up until this point, Jews had taught that if you were rich, you were blessed by God. And if you weren't rich, you were forgotten by God. Or you just weren't blessed by God. Besides that, all of the patriarchs of their religion were rich. Abraham was rich. Isaac was rich. David was rich. Jacob was rich. Solomon was loaded, right? And they were all blessed by God. And then he gets up and he starts and he says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. And then it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which would be good news for those of us who have felt overlooked and forgotten. Felt like maybe God missed us when he was giving out blessings. And that's just the start. That's just the start of his backwards and upside-down worldview for the Jews. He says things like, The meek will inherit. They're under Roman authority. Do you think that the the Romans inherited the kingdom by being meek? No. He says things like uh, the meek will inherit, the merciful were blessed, the peacemakers, not the ones with the most power, the peacemakers, those ones will be blessed by God. And then he says this, which just would be off the wall in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. No doubt when he says this, a murmur goes through the crowd. A murmur, because what is he talking about? Blessed aren't the people that are pure in heart. That's so inward. Nobody's going to see that. Nobody's going to know that. Up until this point, Jews had been taught that blessed are those that aren't pure in heart, but ceremonially pure people that had gone through the right washings, who had avoided impurities, who avoided the wrong houses and the wrong people, and Jesus says, no. Blessed are those who are pure of heart, for they're going to understand how I work, and they're going to see how I work. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He says, you who have chosen to follow me, you are the salt, you are the light of this world. You are are meant to give this world light and flavor, which would be incredibly confusing in Jewish culture. Their job was not to be a light to the world. Their job was to stay away from the world. At this point, his listeners would be incredibly offended, like, no, 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 Jesus, Jesus. Well, we don't eat their food. We don't wear their clothes. We don't marry their daughters. Our daughters don't marry their sons. We stay away from the world. And he says, no, you are supposed to be a light. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And he meant non-Jewish people. He meant the G word, Gentiles. Hmm. He meant the people that they had spent their whole life avoiding. See, and we read this and it makes sense to us, but they would have heard it and it would not make any sense. They have been praying and prophesying and seeking God for, um, for a long time to have a Messiah. And the Messiah that they were hoping for is not what Jesus looked like. The Messiah that they were hoping for was a Messiah that was going to be uh, militant, that was going to rid them of this Roman oppression, a Messiah that was going to come and, and get rid of foreigners in their land, a Messiah that was going to be powerful and tough and maybe even a little scary, so that the other guys would stop bullying us. They were waiting for that. And Jesus says, no, you're called to be a light to those people. And John the Baptist says, he is called to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Jews and not Jews. And Jesus, he would know this, and no doubt, when he looked out into the crowd as he's preaching this, he sees the disappointment on their faces oh man, I thought we were finally going to have our own nation. I thought we were going to be free. And he says this, Matthew five seventeen, Do not think I have come to abolish the, the law or the prophets. Which is interesting because when we read this, we might be a little confused on what he's saying. So about a hundred years after this, Christians start to refer to the first half of your Bible as the Old Testament. But before then, and specifically during this time, it wasn't old. It was the current testament. You know, it was the current covenant. And so they didn't refer to it as the Old Testament. They referred to it as the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus says in here is that, I've not come to destroy or abolish your Bible. I've not come to get rid of your Bible. Let's keep reading. It says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish them, or I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, if the law and the prophets was an assignment, I came to finish it. You know, if, if the Old Testament was a plane, I came to land it. I have come to fulfill this. And eventually, he says, I'm going to invite you to embark on a new covenant. Because this old old covenant has a purpose, and we couldn't do it without it. But it also has an expiration date. It also has a time when it is no longer useful. See, and Jesus did not come to keep this match burning. He came to fulfill its purpose. He came to fulfill what had already been started. Verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the last stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until. Which I think is one of arguably the most important prepositions in all of the Bible. He says, don't worry, I have not come to disappear or, or demolish or abolish or any other words that rhyme with that. I've not come to do that to your Bible until. Andy Stanley argues that that preposition, that word until, is one of the most overlooked prepositions in all of Christianity. And if we overlook what happens next when it says until, we're going to miss the reason that Jesus came to begin with. It says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the last stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, until, now say this with me, everything is accomplished. Until everything is accomplished. And when everything is accomplished, it will disappear. When it is accomplished, everything will disappear along with everything associated with it. Now, this is a part, I think, where the crowds probably said, Okay, Jesus, you preach a good sermon, but whoa there, <laughs> that's a bit much. Do you know what the implications are that you're of what you're saying? Do you understand? All of the things, the entire temple, the sacrificial system, the priests, the authority, the power, the leverage, the money we make, all of those things. You're saying that all of that will disappear. Yeah, right. Now, if you look historically, about 40 years after Jesus dies on a cross, August 6th, 70 AD, ancient Judaism went out of business. Ancient Judaism went out of business because you cannot practice ancient Judaism without a temple. And it has never returned. Now, we'll talk about more of that next week. But here's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. That Jesus was born under God's covenant with Israel to fulfill it, to end it, and to replace it. All of his teachings and parables, they are foreshadows and hints. And he says, I'm bringing about something entirely new. And we have struggled with this reality since the moment he preached it. And they're probably wondering in the crowd, does he really understand the implications of what he's saying? And just in case they were a little confused or if they wondered if he was wavering, this is what happens next. Six different times he says this phrase You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I tell you. Six different times he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. You know who was saying it to them? Moses. He says, You have heard that Moses said this, but I tell you this. He says things like, You have heard, do not murder. But I tell you, don't even hate. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say that lust is a sin in and of itself. He'll say, you have heard it said, men, that it is okay if you write your wife a certificate of divorce that you are good to go with God. And I would say, not so fast. And this whole time, he's pitching himself against Moses. And imagine what it would be like to be on the side of this mountain after Moses was on the side of a mountain delivering law to the Israelites. Imagine what it would feel like. That would be like somebody walking up to you and saying, you have heard Jesus said, but I say. And you'd say, ooh, I don't know how to feel about that. I don't like that. See, there was tension in the room or the mountain. And then he ends on something that we have been quoting for 2,000 years. He says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. He says, All of those laws, all the prophecy, all of the the rules and regulations, the first half of this, I'm going to sum up in one sentence. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That sums all of it up. See, Jesus came to bring new. Something new that was uh, far less complicated but far more demanding. Verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Listen, the crowds, they were confused and perplexed by his teaching, but they were amazed at his authority. See, Jesus spoke with authority without intimidating, without weapons, without bullying. He just carried it. John Wesley would later preach about this, and he said, Notice the air with which he speaks. He speaks not as Moses, the servant of God. He speaks not as Abraham, God's friend, he speaks not as any of the prophets or as any son of man. Here is something more than human. Jesus displays more than that of any other created being. He speaks as creator of all. He speaks as creator. So where does this leave us today? And where does this leave us in the snow in 2020 in Anchor Church? You know? Where does this leave me today? And it goes back to our conversation about this candle. See, the first thing that, that it leaves us with is that Jesus' purpose was to ignite the new covenant. He didn't come to prop up some old matches. He didn't come so that he could uh, strike another match. He came to start something new, something that is far less complex but so demanding of us. Something that has the power to spread over an entire room, over an entire world. Something that was not just for the Jews but for all of his children. Paul, years later, He's going to write this. For we are the aroma of Christ, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance of death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And that is true today, just as true as it was on the mountainside. On the mountainside, no doubt, there were people whose livelihoods and their entire stock was in the temple. And when Jesus said this, it did not smell like life. It smelt like a rotting, carcass, coming to threaten everything that they knew. And yet to those who have chosen to trust God and to trust Jesus, this smell, it was of life. It was of newness. It was of beauty. It was like smelling this candle here. It brought them to this understanding Yes, all of these years, all of the centuries, was worth this new movement. Which leads us to this. Jesus was always about the new. And so I have to be too. Jesus was always about the new. He was always about new covenant, new commands, new strides, new intimacy with God. And so my question for you this morning is, are you about the new are you about the new that God wants to do in your life? Jesus that day, he faced an entire crowd, and some of them, whether it was their wallets or their skepticism, they walked away. They didn't like what they had to hear or smell. See, maybe God is asking you to embrace something new. And as I was praying this morning for you guys, I just had this sense that God is asking each of us that there is something new on the horizon. The question is, will we embrace it? Will we embrace it? Maybe it's new relationships or new community or accountability. A good question to ask is, where have you stalled in your relationship with the Lord? This morning I got this question from God and that is, Where am I too comfortable with being comfortable? Where have I sat down where God has called me to walk into the new? So this morning, uh, we're going to end on some worship. And I want to invite you to worship and to reflect and to ask this question and maybe even uh, inspect your life. Take inventory. Is there any spot in my life God's asking me to embrace the new, and I don't want to. Would you pray with me? Lord, I don't know where exactly you're asking each of us to embrace new, but I do know that you were all about newness, about new life and new promises. God, about a new understanding and intimacy with you. God, would you help us as we we pray and we worship and we seek your face? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.